1: And management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour Leadership in Action on Mission and Execution. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Each week, my goal is straightforward to introduce you to key government leaders who are tackling significant management challenges and seizing opportunities to lead. It is from this rich library that I call together their insights on leadership, mission, and execution. Leaders are responsible for envisioning, shaping, and safeguarding the future, creating clarity amidst uncertainty. This is no small feat, and it is made increasingly difficult in the 21st century, where rapid, unforeseen change seems to be the only constant. How are supplies and innovation delivered effectively to the warfighters? What are the best ways to deliver products and services to federal agencies? And how are federal agencies putting people first? In this special edition of the Business of Government Hour, we will explore these questions and more with a host of government leaders I've had the pleasure of interviewing in 2023. First up is an excerpt of my interview with Vice Admiral Michelle Skubik, who at the time was the director of the Defense Logistics Agency, DLA. As the nation's Combat Logistics Support Agency, the DLA manages the end-to-end global defense supply chain, from raw materials to end-user disposition. Its mission, according to Vice Admiral Skubik, is to deliver readiness and lethality to the warfighter, always and in support of our nation through quality, proactive global logistics. Here's a portion of that discussion. I I was wondering... Do you have, like, say, some key challenges, maybe management challenges that you'd like to highlight? What have you done to address those challenges?
0: So again, it kind of goes back to that that reform piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the challenges, uh, you know, the challenges are numerous. We've got to we've got to work on our cybersecurity. We've got to work on our our speed and scale. Uh, you know, over the years, we have automated much of our procurement processes, for example, and that's one of our Our superpowers, if you will, in so much as, uh, you know, I mentioned those 10,000 contracts a day, Uh, 90-plus percent of those happen through an automated process, Uh, really close to the mid-90s, and 90 percent of the 95 percent are actually done in a day. And so how do you do that? Well, many of those are delivery orders against existing long-term contracts. I mentioned some contracts are for years at a time. Uh, so we have to be able to continue that kind of speed and scale, but then also, as I say, modernize the systems, modernize the business processes, work on our auditability because that's a big effort across the Department of Defense. And so the adage, you've got to build the plane while you're flying it, that that is DLA every day. We have massive efforts in, in uh, transforming. We have a digital business transformation project, which sounds like it's all about IT, but it's really the marriage of technology and tools and the processes that deliver those outcomes for the true North, which is of course supporting the warfighter when and where they need it. And so building the plane while we're flying it, transforming while you're doing today's business immaculately well.
1: So Admiral, could you outline for me your strategic vision, which you hinted at basically in the last segment, but I'd like you to get delve a little deeper. But more importantly, what are your strategic priorities for DLA?
0: I uh, was out on a, um, a key OEM engagement uh, with one of our, one of our critical uh, strategic suppliers. Uh, in a in a coffee break, he said, "So, Admiral, what's what's the magic of DLA?" And I took a half second pause and and thought, "Huh, okay." And I gave him my. Hip shot answer. So it had not been formed in my mind, but it so it was an authentic answer, um, sincerely given. And that was first and foremost the people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I to a person because I've served forward with them. I've served in a couple of the major subordinate commands with them. I have just seen to a person that they they feel so strongly about the mission. And when you consider that out of those. Uh, Twenty-five thousand folks, twenty-four thousand are civilian. Forty-six percent of them, forty-six percent of the civilians, have served in uniform at some point in time, whether four years or twenty years, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's pretty special. Is, is so they get it. You don't have to. Tell them why, but all the rest—many of them are civilians that have volunteered to go serve in harm's way, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, etc. And uh, and we have expeditionary civilians who are have a bag ready to get up and go. Like when the imminent threat of Putin invading Ukraine was uh, obvious, we sent dozens of people additional. Teammates with skill sets into uh, Europe to supplement our our team that was already forward. Those eight hundred folks are doing various missions in Europe. We sent those people forward. Uh, just we even had somebody who spoke Polish. We had you know legal advice. We had uh, supply chain and demand chain experts. Point being is, people are ready and volunteering to go when and where we need them. And and those who haven't done that know who they're supporting both across in the team as well as the warfighters everywhere and that is part of that culture which is so critical. The second one that, again was the mastery of the mach- mastery of the machine which is really kind of that that technology and, and uh, human interface piece, whether it's tools in the warehouse or tools uh, to help our automated business processes, our automated procurement, our supply planning, demand planning, and such. And, and, uh, and we have a lot of work going on in that space that we have to be extremely good at. Uh, and then the third thing that I said was, uh, you know, these are kind of our three weapon systems, if you say. Our people. Mm-hmm. Our uh, mastery of the machine or technology, and then our defense working capital fund, which is essentially mm-hmm. a revolving fund that would cr- we'd cry a whole hour to talk about. We won't. But it's not subject to this same planning, programming, and budgeting system that the appropriated accounts are. And the reason for that is so we can lean into lead time requirements. Some of the unique items that we get, repair parts for aircraft and and tanks, et cetera, don't get ordered very often. When they do, it's going to take some amount of time, one, two, in some cases three years, to get it procured Mm -hmm. and then manufactured and then delivered. Not everything's like that, but some things are like that. So we need the, fl- the flexibility that a working capital fund uh, enables us, and, uh, and we need to use those dollars extremely wisely. So if you take that vignette of the magic of DLA, people, mastery of technology, and then our defense working capital fund— and you rewind it to your question on the strategic plan, you'll see in our strategic plan that we have five lines of effort, and then we have three critical capabilities that coincidentally, <laughs> those are people and culture, digital business transformation, and then, uh, and then fiscal stewardship. So, uh, you know, I'd like to say that was because I walked in and sa- said the magic of DLA is, People, mastery of the machine, and our dwikif, but it was uh, through a deliberate process that we we put that strategic plan together. So, so I'm grateful that my hipshot answer that day was pretty sound. Yeah. And, and so and so those five lines of effort that I just alluded to, uh, it'll take too much time to go into all of them. But the warfighter always—that's our theme. That mm-hmm. is our true north, and that is, of course, supporting the warfighters around the globe. Uh, day in and day out, twenty four seven, and we do say the sun never sets on DLA. Not just because of where we are, which is in a half of the world's time zones, but also because the warfighter is all over the globe. But uh, and then lo- line of effort two is support to the nation, which speaks to more about those other. Uh, customers, the whole-of-government customers, we refer to them. And those are often uh, organizations like FEMA or uh, HHS or the Forest Service who at certain times... uh, can and candidly should benefit from the scope, scale, and skills of a DLA and who can use us through the Economy Act or the Stafford Act to capitalize on our processes and our inventory um, management so that they can respond to a nation in crisis. It's hurricanes. It's Forest fires—it's a pandemic, which our response in the pandemic and our support to um, DoD and non-DoD organizations has been sizable as you could well imagine. So that's what that support to the nation piece is. And then trusted mission partner uh, is line of effort three, modernized acquisition and supply chain management is line of effort four, and then the future of work is line of effort five.
1: Given your background and now your your leadership role. I'd be interested in getting your a sense of some of the risks that the global and arguably interdependent supply chain um, is is encountering. What is DLA doing to anticipate it? How does visibility and security being handled? What, what could you say for that?
0: so so we have a couple of initiatives on this front. Uh, you know, First of all, so much of the digital business transformation is a, it's about not only um, the cybersecurity and the volume throughputs and reducing costs, but it's also about um, capturing, recording, and using data to better inform our decisions, uh, you know, and better inform um, our risk assessments. Uh, and so, you know, our business is fraught with risk. The people we support work in a risk environment. And so we need to see how we can best manage risk. And uh, And the ecosystem of the vendors we work with, the customers in different operating areas, et cetera, you know, demands that we need to have a better uh, view of both market intelligence and what the trends are across our supply chains, what those risks are, Vis-à-vis that that supply chain uh, framework, and uh, and we are seeing areas. You know, this pandemic's been tough on several economic sectors out there. Uh, for us, one that has um, you know certainly taken some hits is the clothing and textiles in industry, yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, you know it has a high volume of small businesses uh, where margins are often tight and so we're we're trying to better understand and also shape our decisions on how we would interact with you know that industry, for example, our our critical suppliers on that front. and so you know it's kind of understanding the full supply chain risk management framework. you know what are the risks? how can we influence uh, shoring up those risks or who do we have to work with stakeholders wise, whether it's different you know OSD policy, different, acquisition regulation policy, different legislation. You know, there's sometimes different ways to get after uh, shoring up risks. Um, but, but first and foremost, we need to understand kind of what we're seeing through our data picture, but also what are we seeing uh, through that market intelligence framework as well. And, uh, you know, all of us have experienced inflation uh, impacts personally, and we're also seeing some of that on the uh, vendor uh, front. And for us, the impacts of that have largely been hedged somewhat by the fact that we have long-term contracts with fixed pricing. Some of our items aren't ordered every year, and uh, and so when they come up on renewal or a new requirement, maybe that's when we'll see a little bit more. We've kind of seen a 7 to 10% range of inflation across our portfolio and and you and I have watched inflation you know if we asked you know a year and a half ago what's inflation going to look like in 2024 you and I might have said eh, 2 to 3% if you asked us 6 months ago we might have said 15% I mean it would it could have been a totally different a number point, yeah. and now even that might be a different answer than 6 months Absolutely. ago and so um so I'm not sure what that's yeah. going to look like going forward. We're always very focused on our small business cadre. I, I mean, they're critical that. to yeah. our our business and and our mission. And uh, out of about nine thousand plus suppliers, eighty percent of them are small businesses. Really? Uh, yeah. It's 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 significant, uh, but we have seen that number drop. And and so, you know, is that because of mergers and acquisitions? Is that because COVID's got people retiring, you know, um, owner-operated businesses, they've decided to retire and go fishing? You know, we don't know the exact why, but what we want to make sure is that we're not part of the reason, that we're not the obstacle to them. And so we have small business leads at each of our buying commands to make sure a small business has a place, an entry point to reach in, learn more about if they're having a problem with anything, kind of gives them a phone a friend uh, that faces small business.
1: The Office of Naval Research, and by extension, the Naval Research Enterprise, are the catalyst of future power, ensuring technological dominance for our naval force and fleet. This enterprise is tasked with discovering, developing, and delivering new technology and capability for the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps by sponsoring new research and creating new capabilities for America's sailors and Marines. Earlier this year, Rear Admiral Lawrence Selby, Chief of Naval Research, joined me on the Business of Government Hour for a timely and insightful conversation on the critical mission he leads, his efforts to advance unmanned systems and develop a strategic hedge based on the small, the agile, and the many. Here's a portion of our conversation. I'm wondering, what are some of the key management challenges you've faced in your role, and how have you sought to address some of those challenges?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I've hit some of that. So so some of this is this transition to technology. I I have been saying for a while, and if you've been reading my stuff online or seeing my videos, I truly believe we are... In some ways, still fighting the last fight, and, and in this, what I'm talking about is kind of the Cold War model. I, I truly believe that the DoD is is still, for the most part, organized kind of around that model. And while there's pockets of excellence trying to get us into this century, I I think we're not we're not going fast enough. And so that's for me the biggest challenge is how do I, you know, disrupt our own system to look for new ways of doing business. Uh, to try to attract new talent, different talent, to try to, uh, you know, convince people in the Pentagon that I can't wait until, you know, Palm 25 to start something that's going to change three times between today and fiscal year 25 if I don't start it right now. And and that's hard because the way we're organized, it's really organized around procuring large complex things like satellites and nuclear submarines and destroyers and high-end fighters and missiles. And we still need those things. So I, I'm very clear when I speak to people that I'm not suggesting we not do that. But I, I think we need to have another host of systems and sensors that are actually a lot simpler and maybe they're complicated, not complex, you know, that's that's a nuance there, but, but it's not complex. It's, it's complicated. And as a result, maybe they're even less expensive and, and maybe they don't have as much range or endurance, but still they have a purpose and a function. And so I've been talking about this for a couple of years now, and it's really starting to resonate with people. And, you know, Chris Bros and I have had some great conversations, you know, he's, he's a believer in this kind of future, more agile kind of uh, warfare. Uh, he wrote that book, Kill Chain, a couple years ago, which, uh, which he and I have had some great discussions about. So it is starting to catch on in pockets. And I I think the biggest thing I'm most proud of in this job is I think I've actually allowed a host of younger and middle tier people, civilian and military, to actually kind of ask questions and, and question the way we're doing this in a respectful manner. But they're actually questioning and they're coming up with new ideas. And you can see the excitement, you know, when you go into a group of these folks and you talk about these, you know, advanced concepts, they get it. And and I'm not suggesting my my peers don't get it. They do get it. But they're also kind of, they've been in the system long enough and they've been doing things the same way long enough that that's kind of what they do. And oh, by the way, we still got to do that stuff because we're still building those complex things. It's how do you allocate enough time in your day to also focus on these other things which I think are tremendously impactful. So that is one of the biggest challenges: is how do you change the system or develop maybe a, a parallel system that does these alternate, kind of what what I call the small, the agile, the many type things, while you also have another system which is really the DoD 5000 and the acquisition system we have today that does the the complex things. Let that system keep doing that. Arguably, it does it pretty well. I mean, yeah, you can knit knit out of here and there, but at the end of the day. You get a really capable Virginia-class submarine, or joint strike fighter, or you know uh, Arleigh Burke destroyer. It does that pretty well. So let that system do that. We need something else for these other things that I'm talking about. Things that are much more digitally based, software based systems and sensors. We need a we need a different model to go do that. And, and that's part of my scout campaign. You know, I'm, I'm scouting for new ways of doing business. Scouting for new approaches to experimentation. Scouting for new approaches to solving problems. You know, that's another thing I talk about a lot. We are so focused on requirements, which, again, takes a year or longer to develop a requirement. You then have to budget for it. Then you have to go you know, procure whatever you've got the requirement for. Again, big billion-dollar things, that's a good process. You still want that requirements process. For most of these other things I'm talking about, We need, we need to become problem-focused. What's the problem we're trying to solve? And then go seek solutions, many of which are potentially commercially available. And I don't even need to go design or build. I just go buy it and provide it to the warfighters. Oh, maybe I don't even buy it. Maybe I just contract for it, contract for the service, put that sensor in this block of the ocean and give me data. I'll pay you day for day. I mean, it's that kind of model. So I'm trying to really tilt it the way we do business to open different pathways for solving problems that the warfighters have right now that can be solved. Much more quickly than developing a requirement, putting it in your POM 25 request, and then going through all the long stroke of things you do in the traditional acquisition process. This has got to be something different. And that's that's what I'm trying to do.
1: You know, sir, as the chief of naval research, you are responsible, as I say, for reimagining naval power for the future in all domains from the ocean floor to space. And where I'm going with this is I'd love for you to outline your strategic vision uh for your organization and the enterprise, and perhaps you could highlight some of your key priorities that
2: make this vision that you outlined before a reality yeah, so again it it, it all starts with people and so one of the foundations for my you know my strategy and my vision is to make sure that I've basically built a, a highly effective team of dedicated professionals to uh, uh, to do science and technology um, and in my mind, it starts in kindergarten and so, again, the STEM, my, my hat as the Naval STEM executive is critical to that, where I, uh, I've i got a team of folks here at, at O&R, in the, at this ONR headquarters that, that lead that, but then they work with the rest of the entire Navy and Marine Corps team to have STEM presence uh, at high schools and middle schools and, you know, uh, science fairs and robotics competitions across the country, sometimes even in other parts of the world, to get kids excited about science Usually, kids are actually pretty excited about science elementary school, but really to keep them excited about science, to mentor them, and to pull them across, there's, there's a valley of death for kids in STEM too. And it's middle school, I, at least that's my personal experience. It's, it's like they grow up inquisitive and love science, think it's really cool. So, in middle school, it, it, either it's either done, done become cool, or oftentimes a kid may not see someone that looks like them that's more senior or older doing something that they think is cool and fun. And as a result, they kind of lose interest. So anyway, so that value depth exists there too. And so we, I want to try to find ways to, you know, minimize the kids you lose because of that. You may lose them because they truly love music or, or art and that's fine. But if you lose a kid because they don't see someone who looks like them, then that's, that's, that's wrong. We need to diversify our workforce. So anyway, so it starts with STEM. So foundational, it's people, get them in, uh, track them, and then give them meaningful work. Uh, and, and again, just kind of step back, stand on their way, let them do their jobs, uh, present them with very unique challenges, uh, but also with the equipment, the facilities, uh, the resources they need to do their, their, their mission, their science, their, their engineering, whatever it is they do, give them what they need to do that. Connect them with the true warfighters. So allow the scientists to travel to the waterfront to meet a Marine, meet a sailor, allow the Marine, the sailor to come to the laboratory to to meet the scientists and and try to facilitate that. So people are exchanging ideas and and for a scientist or engineer at a laboratory or warfare center to know a sailor or Marine, because they've been to that base, been on that ship, been on that submarine, see not just the sailor, but also the equipment that that scientist or engineer maybe cares about, and then see it in the context of how it operates. That can really keep people working for us forever. You, you find people that get into this organization, and uh, I, I was giving out some longevity awards recently. I think there was a 50-year award I just gave out to somebody. So you get people that come here, and they just they love that connection to the sailor and, and the fleet and the sense of purpose that they garner. So part of my vision is to kind of establish that environment where people, they love what they do, they feel connected to the end user, and the technology and the equipment they have to operate with is world class.
1: Admiral, as a follow-up to that strategic vision you just laid out, why is it smart to develop a strategic hedge and how do specific internal drivers and external trends shape and inform
2: that hedge? Yeah. So I mean, I think you you can look throughout history of different examples of where technology is kind of moved moved ahead like it does, but um the organization has has lagged behind it. And, and again, this is common. This is this is is the way humans are you get kind of set in your ways of 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 whatever your daily life is like and the technology you have and then new things are presented to you and there's always going to be a couple early adopters and there's going to be most of us in the middle of that bell curve who who kind of take it at a later date after it's kind of been proven and then there's gonna be some laggards who just kind of never get it and they just kind of dismiss the whole thing and and they're kind of the dinosaurs just to be frank um so i think we're kind of at that pivotal moment again in history where technology has raced pretty far ahead of, of uh, the organizations that, in my case, uh, the Navy, the Marine Corps, the, the DOD, uh, and, and many other companies and corporations and departments across the government, it's not just DOD. But that technology has gotten pretty far ahead and we're kind of struggling to catch up. And if you look back to the 20th century and you just think about the period between World War One and World War II, technology was advancing and uh, these aviators were becoming a a real kind of had a real relevance to warfare as well as the transportation. But warfare is the the point we're going to talk about here. And uh, there was another cadre of these aviators that thought, "Hey, what if we can operate off ships. And um, they convinced enough people in the Navy to actually fund some experimentation and some and some flat tops, some aircraft carriers. And fortunately, we were able to kind of develop a cadre of people who understood how to fly airplanes off of ships and how to employ them in warfare, because there was a whole nother cadre of folks, and it was the majority of folks, that basically said, hey, the battleships have been doing us a great service since the turn of the century, and uh, we're going to keep these things around, because they're going to be the future of warfare, and we're going to just keep using these things, and if we have a, a conflict, then the battleships are going to go over there and, you know, sink, sink the enemy, and then it will be the end of the war. Now we all know what happened, uh, you know, in World War II, and December seventh, in particular. And fortunately, uh, we had a backup plan. We had a hedge strategy, and that's kind of what this—the hedge strategy, just like investing—you may have a primary asset that you they put a lot of your money in, but you also want to hedge that because what if that primary asset? takes a hit in the stock market. You want to have a another strategy that's got, so maybe some other types of investments that will weather that storm as it were. Same thing here. We need to have a hedge. So I think today, I think you look around the Navy um, and Marine Corps and the hedge strategy is really based upon these complex things I talked about, you know, again, high end fighters, submarines, aircraft carriers, destroyers, satellites. And I, I just think we need, we need a backup plan because I think like everything in life, um, you know, there's there's a point where that technology or capability is at its peak, and there's a point where you move past that and something else takes its place. And again, I am not suggesting that's going to happen tomorrow, but I think it's within kind of sight this century that that transition will happen, just like it did in the last century. And we need to be ready for that, which means we need to start trying things, experimenting with new concepts and technologies. And over time, making them more and more a part of your mainstream operations. And if something were to happen one day and we take a hit, uh, we'll have a backup plan. We'll have some other ways of also responding. That's the long way of talking about the head strategy. That's what that
1: is. What are the most innovative ways to deliver products and services to federal agencies? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leadership in Action on Mission and Execution. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. The U.S. General Services Administration's Federal Acquisition Service, FAS, uses the collective buying power of the federal government to acquire goods and services to support its agency customers. Early this year, Sonny Hashmi, the outgoing FAST commissioner joined me on the Business of Government Hour to discuss the mission of this office and explore his vision for delivering on that mission. Here's an excerpt of our conversation. So, Sonny, I'd like to discuss the important role that GSA plays in the replacement of the federal government's legacy technology systems. And in particular, how does TTS and 18F work directly with government agencies on their IT modernization journey and perhaps? Um, You could illustrate some of the successful collaborations. What are some of the challenges being faced in this area? Absolutely. So, um, listen,
4: um, first of all, uh, for those of you who don't know, the TTS, or the Technology Transformation Service, is um, a part of the Federal Acquisition Service. It was an organization that started about 10 years ago with a singular focus on helping agencies be more effective as they modernize their technology. TTS uh, within TTS is an organization called 18F. Which think of 18F as internal consultants within the federal government. The 18F team works very closely with uh, all agencies who are embarking on a, a technology modernization project to help them think through how to scope it, how to organize it, what are the best practices, do user research, and then ultimately help them become smarter buyers. One of the reasons, one of the things that I know without any doubt is that nobody, not government agencies nor consulting firms and suppliers, want to be part of a bad project. Nobody wants to go and spend years and millions of dollars only to lead to a bad outcome. And we unfortunately have too many of those stories in the federal government historically. So TTS and ATF were designed from the very beginning to prevent that from happening through knowledge transfer, through partnership to support. Many of the legacy systems we've been working on across the government are 30, 40, even 50 years old. We're currently consolidating and updating those platforms because, you know, uh, across the government, that's, you know, a lot been driven by cost reduction targets and cybersecurity challenges. And then, like I mentioned, increasingly around customer experience uh, opportunities that, uh, you know, require backend modernization. But... But ultimately, like we, we, it doesn't make any sense to keep building and supporting something that won't be able to take us into the future expectations that we need to do. So technology modernization across the federal government is one of the, one of the biggest priorities for this administration. In fact, both the administration and the Hill have partnered to spend over a billion dollars or set aside over a billion dollars through the technology modernization fund to make sure that agencies have access to capital to invest in these modernization projects. The way TTS and 18F work <clears throat> is that within TTS, 18F and another organization called the Centers of Excellence are acquisition consultants um, you know, that have historically worked on, discovered, refined, and published best practices to reduce the risk of technology projects in both state and local governments and federal government. And they do that by adopting best practices from the private sector, agile principles, DevSecOps. With performance-based service contracts, right? So there's no like, I mean, it's innovative in the sense that when you adopt and, and personify and internalize these best practices, it turns out that the results speak for themselves. Every single time you're able to drive a better outcome. But it requires, it's almost like a culture shift. It requires a dedication and discipline that many times agencies don't know how to get there from here on their own, and that's why we can come in and help. Agencies ultimately can buy smarter right now with the methods, tools, and templates that are available in the 18F uh, de-risking guide, which is a document that we created for any agency to consume that gets, documents all these best practices called de-risking government technology field guide. And as a result, agencies uh, can deliver a better experience to the citizens, and have a much more successful project. So that's the goal of these programs. Where we've seen them work very effectively, and they work constantly across across the entire federal government, is that their impact outlasts just that one engagement. Because not only do they go in and help an agency think about a particular procurement or particular project, but the best practices that leave behind then have greater impact in that agency's future uh, projects that may come along. AT&F partners with agencies to improve the user experience of government services by helping them build and buy technology. So, as an example, uh, as many of you know, October was Cybersecurity Month. AT&F is, for example, currently partnering with agencies that specialize in that space, uh, including uh, the Department of Homeland Security and CISA, which is the Cybersecurity and Information in, Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. Um, this is where we can take the best practices that exist in government and copy and paste them for the benefit of every other agency. And so that's the value that they provide. Lastly, I wanted to mention that we've deployed a cross-functioning team to work on a new experience for the .gov registrar. So the .gov registrar is basically the authoritative body that assigns .gov URLs to any state, local, federal government agency. The only place where the U.S. government, the only place that U.S. governments, including states and territories, localities, tribes, and federal agencies, can receive a trusted.gov domain. So, by working closely with CISA through the AT&F uh, team, not only are we going to be able to create a great experience for agencies to be able to leverage that, but also increase trust in government. Ultimately. Citizens, when they engage with government, they know that they're working with a trusted entity, and this is just one of the ways to
1: do it. Would you tell us more about the work around building supply chain resiliency and securing the supply chain?
4: That's a great question. And uh, by the way, there's two aspects to this um, uh, to this challenge that I want to highlight. One is the, the overall security and risk surface of the supply chain. How do we understand it? How do we reduce it over time so that we can reduce, continue to reduce and de-risk the supply chain overall. The second aspect is resiliency. How do we enable the supply base that we work with to be more resilient in the face of cyber challenges, but also to secure their own subsequent supply chains so that they know that when they provide a product or service, including software, for example, that the government relies on, that they have internal controls within their organizations that are securing their own code base, their releases, and their product uh, development cycles. So just taking a step back, Executive Order 14.028 sets a stage for the need to reassess the cybersecurity posture, government-wide, for all of our supply chain. And it's defined a strategy to move agencies towards the same level of maturity. Now understand that software does not just mean the software that runs on our computers. Every single aspect of our personal lives today have a component of software. When you turn up the thermostat in your house to make it warmer, there's software involved. When you run the dishwasher at night, there's software involved. And similarly in government, every single thing that we use, from security products to physical security products to uh, personal uh, uh, you know productivity capabilities, building management, logistics uh, capabilities, vehicles, everything has software embedded in them. And so when you look at the scope of uh, this challenge, it's it's ever increasing the surface area of the challenge. And we want to make sure that we apply these best practices and policies to all of those different categories. Our top priority is to maximize customer value and mission productivity, of course. And so we have to ensure acquisition and category activities align with cybersecurity policies and objectives. It's not just enough for us to say, here's the new regulations, everybody has to comply. We have to actively go out of our way and reach out to these communities um, and help them understand and develop internal controls to assess the security of their software. As an example, uh, one of the areas that we're working on at FAS, which is a key focus area for the administration, is to deliver and deploy electrification technology across the nation. As you know, under the infrastructure uh, bill, Uh, The president had made a commitment to deploy as many as 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations across the nation. And within the federal government, about, you know, another many tens of thousands will be deployed over the next, over the coming years. Now, each one of these charging stations is a network connected device. So ultimately, historically, that industry has not very been very up to speed on what the cybersecurity expectations of the federal government are. So as an example, we've been proactively working with the suppliers in that community. To help them understand what NIST standards to follow, how to comply, how to document, how do we test and validate those products so that we are pre-staging those products. So when an agency purchases a charging station, for example, and deploys them, or when a tribal organization purchases a tribal charging station and deploys them on uh, on tribal territory, or a state or city agency does that, that all of that security expectations are tested and built in. They don't have to do that validation over and over and over again. That's just one example on how this uh, executive order is driving the right outcomes. Ultimately, making sure vendors have incorporated into their software development processes, best practices defined by NIST is the goal. And uh, one thing I wanted to mention is that M2218, which is the OMB memo that codifies this executive order and provides implementation guidance is uh, leading to rulemaking. So one of the things that is underway right now is the uh, Federal Acquisition Regulation has a uh, draft rule that is out for comment. Want to make sure that anybody who's listening, who is uh, part of a company that is building software that you sell to the federal government or make available to the federal government, participates in that rulemaking. One of the things we don't want to do is create such burden for software providers that it's increasingly it, it's even harder. To do business for the government, because it's easy for us to pass a regulation, but we want to do it in a way that actually adds value to your operation and, of course, protects the cybersecurity posture of the enterprise. And so we want to partner with you all. We want to hear from you and your ideas on how we can make that rule uh, the most streamlined way we, we can, and what are the better ways and other ways that we can be thinking about increasing the cybersecurity posture of our overall enterprise. So I've called this particular challenge the challenge of the decade because and truly so the surface area is so large and the risk is at a point which is unsustainable that unless we take significant action now we will continue to have increasing challenges not only for the next decade but beyond and the challenge is significant enough that not only are we do we need to just you know take actions today but we need to continuously put effort and focus on the cybersecurity and overall supply chain risk management aspect of the federal government for a sustained amount of time until it's fully embedded into everything we do.
1: How are federal agencies putting people first? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour
3: returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT Management Framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today.
1: Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leadership in Action on Mission and Execution. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. Every interaction between the government and the public is an opportunity to deliver the value Americans expect and deserve. People are at the center of everything the government does, and that is why the federal government must center its services around those who use them, delivering simple, secure, effective, and responsive solutions for those the government serves. Putting people first and focusing on the customer experience are key to effectively delivering on agency missions and core to executing on program outcomes. Colt Whittall, then the Chief Experience Officer, CXO, at the US Department of the Air Force, joined me on the Business of Government Hour to explore Air Force's user experience strategy and some of the key challenges to improving the customer experience. I'd love to understand your role within the U.S Department of the Air Force and that is uh what are the responsibilities and duties for the chief experience officer and can you highlight some of the some of the things that are under your portfolio
5: sure so when we created the role and I was involved um in drafting the position description originally um we we focused on a few main things um, first was just being a strategic advisor and communicator regarding you know matters related to user experience because we didn't have that Second was to work with the CIO organization and the whole communications, you know, comms ecosystem to improve user experience of enterprise IT, which when you talk about enterprise IT, it's mainly about three things, performance, reliability and resilience, and uh, kind of the support that goes along with that. And I would probably even add a fourth thing which is uh, just the general interaction of it because it can get clunky sometimes, particularly due to security things. So there's that. That's kind of the second aspect. Another aspect is to work with the application, you know, the software community. So one thing I haven't talked about yet is, you know, my job as I'm working for the CIO, I probably spend two-thirds, maybe three-quarters of my time focused on enterprise IT most people would think of ux more as software and applications but that is part of my job too and so um since we have literally thousands of applications in the air force certainly well over a thousand thousands maybe an overstatement but well over a thousand we have a lot of them so i can't go out and individually work with each one that would be impossible but part of my job is to help put things in place that try to raise the bar of user experience across that entire massive portfolio. And it's really, to be honest, it's multiple portfolios. There's, you know, the personnel portfolio or a one there's the FM portfolio or financial management. There's the logistics portfolio, a four, we really have multiple portfolios. The idea is to help raise the bar across all of that. Um, and then the last thing that we put in the position description that, is is broad there are certain I call them the mega user journeys and and what that is those, those are these kind of user journeys that just cross the entire air force practically or at least a huge swath of it and so one of the ones that i focused on um and really the major the two big ones that i focused on really are PCSing or permanent change of station, which is an aggravation for pretty much anyone who ever served in uniform and civilians too in PCS. And the uh, the second one is readiness. I regret to say we haven't yet made tons of progress in either one of those, but we've given it a solid shot um, and continue to do so. That's the role.
1: I, I was wondering, uh, Colt, uh, as a follow-up to I uh, sort of describing the role How does your work and the focus on user experience and user interface support the overall mission of the U.S. Department of the Air Force's CIO shop and the department in general?
5: Well, there are several ways. I'll start first with one way that it doesn't. You know, I occasionally get people, you know, say things like, well, wait a minute. Why do we need a chief experience officer, right? We're not, you know, this is the the Air Force, for crying out loud. And I couldn't agree more, actually. It sounds a little strange, but um, what I have to remind people, and this is part of my strategic communications part of the role, is this is not about, you know, we're not selling, you know, airline tickets and vacations and cruises and movies and video games. You know, this is not that stuff. I am not here. I gave an interview one time. You can still find if you go look for it. Where I said, you know, my objective is not to delight my users. And it's not, but I would back that up and say, wait a minute, if all of this technology performs and helps people do their mission better, you know, up to their level of expectations, you know, and be their best selves in their role in the mission, they will not be delighted. They will be absolutely ecstatic. And then for about a week, they'll be that and then they'll it'll become the expectation and you know we'll you know that'll be the new norm and we'll move on and they'll keep doing it and we'll get benefits so what are we really trying to do for the mission practically every job in the department of the air force is enabled by technology in some way the business side of it certainly is the mission side of it certainly is almost every job is enabled even if even if you don't interact with a computer all the time it's still computing processes that support a big chunk of what you do. So somebody else is probably doing something with it related to, you know, on your behalf. So if that technology is, you know, it takes 20, 30 minutes to boot up in the morning, if it's unreliable, if it causes people to lose a day's work or half a day's work, um, if you have to wait for two, three, four weeks to get it provisioned. And in the course of that, you have to go borrow somebody else's machine And it doesn't enable you to get organized in your new job. You know, if if you can't, you know, if systems are just slow and buggy and take a long time to get something done, most young airmen today come in, they're already experts in technology, right? IT is like the air they breathe, right? And so, you know, they, I think, rightfully get a certain amount of frustration if they can't fairly quickly figure something out. I think they expect they need to learn their job. They need to learn, you know, how to maintain an airplane or do whatever their job is. Um, But I generally don't think they expect to have to come in and, you know, fight through really weird stuff in a fairly basic application to, like, get somebody decorations or awards or something like that. So... All of these things are, you know, on the one hand, um, they amount to aggravations, but they do cause loss of productivity. And that's actually lost productivity due to IT is something we actually now track. And we can talk more about it later. So it's it's about productivity. It's about meeting expectations. So, you know, we had the fix my computer memo for Michael canon came out about 18 months or so. And it pointed out something I think that's very important. It pointed out that, wait a minute you know, we go out and we recruit young airmen. You know, we are the, you know, the biggest, most lethal, most sophisticated air force and space force on the planet. And then there's this giant disconnect between some of the technology that they use every day to accomplish seemingly fairly simple things, sometimes very sophisticated things, but often very simple things. They see that disconnect and it doesn't really make one feel good about our ability to do the big things, right? So we need to close that disconnect. We, you know, when you can't deliver on some of these small things, it doesn't make you feel real good about the big things. So there's there's productivity, there's actual mission effects, and then I think there's this general kind of call it, you know, brand disconnect that I think um, is very negative in a number of ways, right? And it potentially could turn out and be negative for you know recruiting or retention. Um, I don't have any data to suggest that it is, but it is possible.
1: I'm wondering within the context of the Air Force's IT strategy, can you elaborate on the department's user experience strategy and its outside in approach? And what are some of your key priorities in this area?
5: Sure. So here's the funny thing. You don't see user experience mentioned much in our IT strategy. Um, if you look at the SAFCN strategy, which is on our website, there's not a lot of mentions of it, but we do. Want results, right? The whole reason why we're doing this is results and outcomes. And so, sometimes on slides, you'll see me where my title is. It says Chief Experience Officer, and I cross out the experience and write in outcomes. So, I think our CX—I do have a CX strategy. I didn't actually want to write one, but we kind of needed one to be able to communicate it. And you can actually go find it on Medium. It's um, about a page and a half white paper, maybe two pages. So it's a very simple thing. It's not a big strategy document, but really what it is, at the end of the day, it's focused on leverage points. But the uh, it fundamentally, the concept is every big area of our IT strategy really at the end of the day is looking for outcomes. And so the CX strategy or the user experience strategy is really focused on outcomes. And the idea is let's treat airmen as customers. Let's treat ourselves almost like we're a big IT services company that's serving consumers. Let's operate a little bit that way. Let's measure user experience from our customer perspective, so our airman perspective, which is sometimes easy and sometimes hard to do, depending on what you're measuring. Then let's track that over time and manage the service levels. I mean, fundamentally, that's the strategy. And if you go do some research on, you know, in the analyst websites, the gardener, forester, all that kind of stuff, they describe that as an outside-in approach. So, in other words, IT stop focusing so much. You know, you have to focus on the stuff, right? You got to focus on the network and uptime and links and all the stuff that we do. But the concept of an outside-in strategy is if the outcome I'm getting, like if the performance of all the key applications and the reliability of all the key applications at the edge, right? So, right there at the glass, when I'm using, if all of those those metrics are good, then you're doing a pretty good job, and you, you know, you're delivering right? You're getting the outcome that you want. So that's the idea of an outcome, you know, an outside-in approach. And it makes complete sense. Um, And it also applies when you consider things like tech refresh. You know, sometimes I think when we talk about tech refresh, you know, we look at tech debt and we say, well, what's the old stuff, you know, in the network or the old stuff in the data center or whatever, right? And then we say, well, whatever's oldest, we must have to replace that, you know, go spend money there. And that may be right. All right. It could get to the right answer, but I would approach it a little differently. I would say, okay, well, from an outside in perspective, here are the specific bases or applications or computers or whatever that are getting bad outcomes that the performance data looks horrible and let's go fix them and deal with that first and sometimes that means you do something at the edge like replace computers sometimes it means you might need to do something in the network or the base boundary or with the routers or with the data center but it you know focus on the outcomes that you're measuring at the edge and try to drive those results that's the outside strategy
1: what advice would you give other organizations uh within let's say within the federal government whether it's federal civilian or or with in the defense area uh, who are looking to begin or further develop their own formal user experience
5: programs? So I would approach it in a similar way. Um, I think outside-in is the way to do it. Um, I think data is the way to do it. Um, and I think you have to back that up. Um, we haven't talked about all of these different pieces of this, but there's, there's other pieces to it. Um, their policy can help. I think a lot of times people start with policy but I think policy can help because you can require, you know, owners of applications to collect web analytics. You can require them to collect user feedback. You can require them to use a user-centered design process. You can require them to use a design system. We, didn't, we haven't talked about that, but we're, we're getting ready to launch something there too. And so there are certain things that policy can do. So I think you know you got to think about that. The other thing I would say is tools are a big deal because the typical tools that help. People deliver a good user experience in the commercial sector. Most of those tools are not really available much in DOD because of security reasons and other things. So basic web analytics, I mentioned, you know, if you go open almost any private business, you're going to get web analytics, you know, from somewhere. Um, there is multiple products. They don't cost very much money, maybe a hundred, $200 a month. You put some tags in your website and it'll track how many people come and where they come from and all kinds of things, right? Performance, availability, uptime, whatever. And so we haven't had those tools available to us. So they don't cost a lot of money. So focus on making those tools available. And we've done some of that. Um, We now have um, an open source web analytics tool stood up on cloud one. We have about 20, 21 applications in process of tagging for it. Those kinds of things I would do. Enable them with tools back it up with some policy that helps kind of get things going and then uh, put in place, you know, the, the platforms that give you data so that you get that kind of outside in and customer centric view. Those would be the big things I would do.
1: Thanks for joining me on the special edition of the business of government hour leadership and action on mission and execution. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or on your favorite podcast app. And as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.
3: How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.